Welcome to the audio channel of the Reverend Dr. C.H.E. Sadoffel. His purpose is to preach Christ, teach the Bible, and make disciples. Now let us open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to him proclaim the Word of God. So church, I would invite the congregation to please stand and turn to Psalm chapter 10, verses 1 to 11, as we will first pray and then read the Word of God. Psalm chapter 10, verses 1 to 11. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. You were as a lamp to our paths and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant to deliver a word of truth, so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Psalm number 10, verses 1 to 11, the NASB says, why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved throughout all generations. I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten, he has hidden his face, he will never see it. Please be seated. So church, as we continue our series preaching through the Psalms, this morning we're going to continue our exposition of Psalm number 10 and look at Psalm number 10, verses 1 to 11. Now, what Psalm number 10 tells us overall is it tells us what makes the wicked wicked. It tells us how evil grows up and gets so big. Martin Luther said, quote, we shall find here we shall find in Psalm number 10 a perfect image and representation of iniquity, end quote. Psalm number 10 tells us that those individuals who hate God, what they will do is they will oppress God's people. 
And when they do, Psalm number 10 shows the oppressed how they are to cry to God by giving them a language of prayer. But Psalm number 10 does not end in despair. Psalm number 10 does not end in sorrow. Psalm number 10 ends giving us hope and reassurance in that, in the midst of times of trouble, it shows us how to move from hostility and discouragement to peace, encouragement, and confidence in God. Now, as I said at the top, Psalm number 10 tells us what makes the wicked wicked, and we're going to stick with that theme of 10. Psalm 10, and this morning we're going to look at 10 features of wickedness. Psalm number 10, 10 features of wickedness. Let us begin. Verse number 1 tells us why Psalm number 10 is being written. The psalmist is crying out to God. And the psalmist is crying out to God because God seems to be far away in a time of trouble. Verse 1 says, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And what we've established in a prior exposition is that the psalmist is asking God questions. But asking God questions is not the same as questioning God. Now, why is, the why is the time in which the psalmist is in, why is it so troublesome? It's troublesome as a function of what the wicked are doing. What are the wicked doing? Verses 2 to 11 tell us. Verse 2. In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. Point number one, 10 features of wickedness, feature number one, the wicked are full of pride. The wicked are full of pride. In other words, they have a diseased mind. Now, what is pride? Pride in plain language is a false elevation of the self. The root of our English word pride comes from a Hebrew word that can also mean surging water. As in, you are so full of yourself, you're full of water that's about to burst and overcome and, ever, and overtake everything in your way. Pride is dangerous, church, because it's a violation of the first two commandments. Commandment number one is worship God alone. Commandment number two is no idolatry. What pride does is it takes God off the throne and worships the self, and it makes an idol out of me, which is a direct violation of commandment number one and number two. But God never stops being God. God is the king who rules forever and ever. So if someone were to try and dethrone God, that's a symptom of having a diseased mind because they're delusional. 
Pride is what compels a person to act like a little G God in the world because pride actually tries to imitate God. And pride wants other people to worship me. So everyone bows down and tells me that I am king. Pride is the mother of all wrongs. From pride begets malice, murder, and cruelty because pride forgets that other human beings are made in the image and likeness of God so that now other human beings are simply expendable. The prideful person always looks down because if they look up, who they will see is a heavenly God above them. And as Edward Payton once said, quote, Pride is the most secret and subtle of all sins, end quote. Why did he say that? Because the person who is full of pride will do in private what they would never do in public. Why? Because of their pride. Because they want to protect their public image. They want everyone to think they're an angel. So in public, they're Mr. or Mrs. Goody Two-Shoes. But when the lights are off, now you will see an extreme manifestation of diabolical wickedness. Beloved, pride is dangerous. But pride is the most dangerous, not because of what John Doe does to someone else. Pride is not the most dangerous because of what one person does to other people. Pride is the most dangerous because it gets you in trouble with heaven. God hates, I did not misspeak, God hates the prideful person. Proverbs 6 16 to 19. And if God hates something, then you're in real trouble. Then he must judge you. Ten features of wickedness. Feature number one, the wicked person is full of pride, meaning they have a diseased mind. Verse number three, for the wicked boasts of his heart's desire and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. Point number two. The wicked desire ungodliness. The wicked desire ungodliness, meaning they have a diseased heart. What does our text say? That the wicked person boasts of his heart's desire. But here's the problem. The heart's desire of a wicked person is what? It's wickedness. It's sin. It's darkness. That is a warped desire coming from a diseased heart. But here's the catch, beloved. A person with a diseased heart boasts in a mere desire, but they never consider the suitability of that desire. They never consider where that desire is going to make them end up. They never consider if that desire is righteous or not. We live in a world, we live in a culture where people tout freedom of choice. They say, look at me, I'm free. I can now do whatever I want to do. But freedom of choice simply means you are free to act based on a desire. But the person who's not thinking never stops to ask themselves, 
is the desire that's in my heart that's driving me to act. Is that desire right? Is that desire good? Where is that desire going to end me up? How is that desire, how does that place me in my standing with God? The wicked person who has a diseased heart, who desires ungodliness, that desire is an abhorrent lust that despises God and exalts me over everything and everyone else. And as a result, for the wicked person who desires ungodliness, the only thing they are free to choose is their own destruction. But not only does the wicked person have a diseased mind and a diseased heart, they also have a diseased mouth. What does the text say? And the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. In other words, the wicked weaponize language against God and mobilize language to bless those who stand against the Almighty. Feature number three. The wicked hate God. Feature number three. The wicked hate God. The diseased heart of the wicked animates a vile, vehement hatred of the God of the universe. Here's what verse number three says. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The other way of translating that word spurns is renounces. When you renounce something, that means you abandon someone or you reject something. But here's the catch, beloved. You can only abandon someone if you were once with them. You can only reject something if you once accepted it. And understanding this one itty-bitty word unlocks a treasure trove of understanding in this entire psalm. This same word spurns is also used in Isaiah 1-4 and Numbers 14-11. Let's now take a step to Numbers to make sure we have the appropriate biblical understanding of what this word means. We're going to end up in Numbers 14-11. In Numbers 14, what happens? You have the people of Israel, they're in the wilderness. They send spies out to spy the promised land. They send 12 spies. Ten spies say, there are giants, there are enemies, we can't do this, let's go back home. But only Joshua and Caleb say, the Lord brought us out here, the Lord's not going to do us any wrong, let's go and take the land. The people of Israel grumble. And they say, why has God brought us out here in the wilderness? He should have left us in Egypt so that we could die. Joshua and Caleb tell the people, do not rebel. Do not spurn. Do not reject your maker. And you know what the people do? They pick up stones and they're about to stone Joshua and Caleb. Then what does God do? 
he appears to Moses in the tent of meeting. Here's what Numbers 14.11 says. I'm going to use the same words in Psalm 10.3. The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? How long will this people renounce me? And how long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? Here's a crucial understanding point, church. You can only spurn God. You can only renounce him if you once had a profession of faith. When the psalmist talks about someone who is wicked because they spurn or because they renounce God, he's talking about someone who's in the church who's in the covenantal community, someone who actually knows a little bit of God's word, someone who's actually seen God doing something powerful and miraculous in life. And then what happens? At some point, they turn, and the God to whom they once professed faith, they now fall away. Beloved, the most diabolical, the most evil form of evil is apostasy. It's someone who at some point of time was close to God, who knew God, who was right next to God, and then at some point they spurn him, they reject him, they turn away from him. And apostasy is far more dangerous than ignorance. Why? If you are ignorant and committing idolatry, you may simply not just know. Acts 17, 23. And once you now gain truth, your ignorance is now satisfied. But the apostate, someone who once knew God and turns away from him, the reason why they turn away from God is because they hate him. Who was the first apostate? Satan himself. He was an angel responsible for worshiping and glorifying God. And then one day in his heart, which was diseased, he developed a hatred and abhorrence for his maker and said, God, I want to dethrone you. As a result, Lucifer became the first apostate. And here now why is apostasy so dangerous? Because the apostate hates God, because they actually know something about God. Everything they are and everything they do is the complete opposite of the God of heaven. The God of heaven stands for holiness, justice, truth, and life. The apostate stands for sin, injustice, the lie, and death. The most wicked form of wickedness the most evil form of evil is apostasy. Just ask the devil. The most dangerous form of wickedness is not atheism. It's not other religions. 
the greatest threat to the life of the church, which the Bible says and which church history validates, is not the enemy without church, it's the enemy within. It's people who actually know God, who at once were part of the community of faith and then turn away from their maker because they hate God. And this is now how evil grows up. Out of his or her hatred for God, the apostate now continues to do progressively more brazen, progressively more arrogant acts in life, trying to test God, trying to mock him, trying to make his people look bad and to oppress them. And then as a result, when that wicked person executes their wickedness in life, the person of God now cries out the language of Psalm number 10. So 10 features of wickedness. Feature number three, the wicked hate God. Now that we know, church, who the wicked are, now we have to take a look at what they're going to do. Verse 4. The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Feature number four. The wicked do not seek God. The wicked do not seek God. This goes back to feature number one. Because the wicked person is full of pride, knowledge of God is now undesirable because knowledge of the one true God now poses a threat to the God of me, to the God of self. As a result, they dare not seek or chase after the God of the universe. Church, we have to realize something. We have to always beware of heart-hardening religion. We have to always beware of the gospel, people sitting under the truth of God's word. We always have to be aware of the gospel hardening people. Now that we know there's always going to be an enemy within that has a diseased mind and has a diseased heart, when someone actually does not like God, but they hate him, the more they now learn about him, the more word they hear, the more scriptures they read, you know what that does? It makes them hate God even more. Because now they realize God really is God and I am not. They now realize God really is God. You can't fool him. You can't escape him. You can't dupe him. He sees everything and knows everything, and he will not change. As a result, the wicked don't seek God because they find him offensive. And since they find him offensive, what do they now want to do? Silence people who talk about him. Silence people who actually proclaim what the Bible actually says. Yes, God actually did say precisely and exactly what he meant and meant exactly what he said. But if they have no choice, if they have to deal with God, what they'll now try to do is water God down and make him not as, not as offensive. They won't talk about sin, won't talk about wrath, won't talk about hell. They'll just say, Jesus was a nice teacher who gave lots of flowery lessons on moralism, and as long as you follow his example, everyone will make it to heaven, including your dog, Scruffy. The wicked 
Do not seek God because he is offensive. Feature number five. The wicked are practical atheists. Feature number five. The wicked are practical atheists. What's a practical atheist? Excellent question. A practical atheist is someone who doesn't actually believe God is fake. They actually know God is real, but they simply live as if God doesn't exist. A practical atheist is someone who simply lives as if God does not exist. Every human being born, if you are a human being, congratulations, you know this fact. Every human being that lives, that ever has lived, that ever will live, every human being knows God is real. How do we know that? Romans 1. It's made evident to everybody everywhere. There are no innocent natives somewhere out there in the jungle of Africa who don't know God is real. How do we know that? Because God tells us so. They know God is real. But some people don't want God to be real. The fool says in his heart. The fool does not say in his mind. The fool says in his heart, Psalm 14:1, that God does not exist. And because the practical atheist doesn't want God to exist, they simply live as if he's not real. Look at what the text says. All his thoughts are, there is no God. You know what no one ever does? have thoughts that say, the tooth fairy's not real, the tooth fairy's not real, the tooth fairy's not real. Why do we never do that? Because we all know the tooth fairy's a fairy tale. But because of the person who doesn't want God to be real and live as if he doesn't exist, they have to try and rationalize and excuse their guilty conscience. So now they keep telling themselves there is no God so they can live by one law, do as you please. The person who's a practical atheist lives under the delusion that God isn't watching them, and they live under the delusion that God isn't watching what they're doing to other people. As a result, they can cause wickedness and oppression and think they're getting away with it. The practical atheist is dangerous because of their relative morality, meaning nothing is objectively right or wrong. It's all relative. Now the person who can decide what's right and wrong is me. Now who can decide what's right and wrong is culture. Now who can decide who's right and wrong, what's right and wrong, are legislators. We can vote morality into existence. But the problem, beloved, is this. If all morality is relative, then nothing is true. If all morality is relative, no one could ever go up to Adolf Hitler and say, what you're doing is wrong, because it's all relative. And morality simply is whatever you make it. When I say practical atheists, I want you to think about the 21st century American. What do I mean by that? 75% of Americans say they're Christian. 
which means one would presume that 75% of Americans would say, the Bible matters. The Bible leads me and guides me in my life. What God says actually matters. But there's a study that comes out every year called the State of the Bible. And in the 2019 State of the Bible, guess what the data showed? That 50%, technically 48% of Americans said the Bible plays no relevance in their life whatsoever. Did you get it? Do you understand what I'm saying? 75% of Americans say, I'm Christian, but half of Americans say, Bible doesn't matter. Which tells us what, church? That we are living in a country of practical atheists where people say one thing, they say, I believe in Jesus, but when it comes to actually living their practical everyday life, they simply do what they want to do. The practical atheist would say, of course Jesus is real. Of course there is heaven and hell. But when you look at their life, it is no different than someone who knows nothing about God. So the fifth feature is the wicked are practical atheists. Feature number six, and this is probably the hardest to live with. The wicked are prosperous. The wicked, feature number six, the wicked are prosperous. Verse number five says, his ways, the wicked person, his ways prosper at all times. The harsh reality, church, is that profitability incentivizes wickedness. You may find yourself at some point where you park your car in your house, it's an old, beat-up, 1989 used car. It, it looks a mess. And then someone who lives right next door next to you has a nice flashy suit, brand new car, has a Rolex on their watch. They say, look at me. Look at how blessed I am. Look at all, look at all of my stuff. Look at you, Christian. You're wasting your money tithing. You're wasting your time reading your Bible. Of what value is prayer? Look at you and look at me. I'm better than you are. Simply doing what I want to do. And the reality is, that's a narrative, that's a tale that will play out in reality all across the world. Fact of reality, the wicked are prosperous. But let's ask ourselves a question. When we see someone who's prospering because of wickedness, why are we actually upset? Because according to the Bible that I read, God guarantees the prosperity of the godly. He also guarantees the destruction of the wicked. So what exactly would there be? What substance is there for us to be jealous or envious about? In fact, church, 
The prosperity of the wicked is inherently dangerous because the more prosperous they become, the more they think they're winning, the more they think God is not paying them any mind, when the reality is the farther and farther they're moving away from the God of the universe. The more prosperous they become, the, the, the greater the delusion that they are not dangling by a mere thread and at any second their foot may slip and be consumed by the dreaded abyss. The more prosperous they become, the more they think, I'm okay. The more they think, there is no God, God is not paying me any mind. So yes, the wicked are prosperous, but that's never something to be envied. In fact, that, that means the more prosperous they become, the more we should pray for them. Feature number seven, the wicked minimize God. The wicked minimize God. They live by the mantra, God must decrease so I can increase. Verse number five, the wicked person says, your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. The wicked person thinks God's judgments are locked up somewhere in heaven and they have no relevance to him or her down on earth. So they minimize God's omnipotence, that he's powerful everywhere all the time. The wicked person says that what he or she is doing is out of God's sight. In other words, they minimize God's omniscience, the reality that he knows everything. The wicked person also minimizes the testimony of his adversaries because here, guess what, church? For the wicked person, his adversary is an evangelist. His adversary is someone who wants to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. But because the wicked person minimizes God's son and minimizes God's gospel truth, he regards a, someone who wants to be a friend in Christ as an adversary. The wicked person has a foundation that is shaky, which leads me to my next feature. Feature number eight. The wicked have a worldview based on false security. The wicked have a worldview based on false security. Verse six. He says to himself, I will not be moved throughout all generations. I will not be in adversity. The reality, church, is that God is long-suffering. But a wicked person will mistake the long-suffering of God as, I'm getting away with it. Ecclesiastes 8.11. And what will happen now is that peace, ease, safety, and security will give that person a false sense of what's really real, that it could end at any moment. For while the wicked person may say, I will last forever and I will be safe throughout all generations, what Isaiah chapter 40 says is that all flesh is grass. While the wicked person may say, I will not be moved throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity, what does the person of God say? They say, I probably will be moved. 
I probably will be moved in the next five minutes. I probably will be shaken up and I may be in adversity all the time. But their security is not in stuff. Their security is not in things. Their source of faith is not in other people. It is in God himself. Feature number nine. The wicked weaponize the lie. The wicked weaponize the lie. Here's what Jesus says in Luke 6.45. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Translation, what comes out of you in language is a representation of what's really on the inside. You want to know what a person really is? You want to know what they really value? You want to know if they really, really, really trust God? Just say nothing and let them speak. And sooner or later, they will give themselves away. Because if you have malice and enmity and darkness on the inside, what's invariably going to come out is curses and deceit and oppression. Verse 7, his mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. When the religious hypocrites came to see John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3, you know what he called them? A brood of vipers. Why did he use that loaded language? Because vipers are poisoned. It's in them. And then as a result, what comes out is venom. It's poisonous. So what's on the inside, therein comes out on the outside. And look at the language John the Baptist used. Vipers actually have their bags of venom under their tongue. So literally speaking now, that venom, that weaponized language now comes out from the storehouse underneath their own oral cavity. Beloved, the point is simple. The wicked weaponize the lie because one of the favorite tools of the enemy is the lie. And for the wicked, all bad comes out because on the inside there is no good. And when they put forth that venom and propagate the lie in reality, the lie is dangerous simply because they may not destroy you with the lie. If you actually begin believing the lie, guess who ends up destroying you? You do. Because you believe that which is contrary to God's truth, and now your greatest threat is not the lie of the enemy, it's the predicament that now puts you in, in your standing with your maker. Final point. Feature number 10, the wicked are murderers. The wicked are murderers, both literally and figuratively. Verse 8, he sits in the lurking places of the villages, in the hiding places. 
He kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. Verse 9, he lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. Satan and forces of evil are often characterized in the Bible as a lion to depict brute force to depict power. And the wicked person who is a murderer, often because they are prosperous, they have power, they have strength, and therefore overpower those by brute force. But even if the lion is not using brute force to overpower someone else, the lion also has a plan B. The lion also has a net. And what's the bait? What does the lion use to catch people in his net? Well, that's easy. Things in life that simply don't last. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Just as Jesus went fishing in Luke chapter 5, he cast his net of the word to draw fish out of one environment into another, out of darkness into his marvelous light. The net that the lion casts is the lie which is intended to keep fish down, to keep fish in the darkness so they never have their eyes open to see God's marvelous light. And why do the wicked do this? Why do they go after other human beings? Because they're murderers. Realize, church, Satan being a spirit doesn't oppress other spirits. Only men go after our own kind. Only human beings. We're the only members of the created order who go to bed at night devising schemes and plans as to how can I trap, how can I enslave, how can I oppress other human beings just like me. We are the only members of the created order that do that, and that reality exists because of a diseased mind and a diseased heart. Final verse. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. The wicked person comforts himself that God is blind. But guess what, church? God is not blind. God can actually see far better than you and I. God can see what I can't. God can pierce the depths of your soul and know that when you're praying for ABC, what you actually desire is XYZ. God can see it before it even happens. So when the fool says he will never see it, that's a falsified delusion because God sees all. My firstborn son, our firstborn son, is now six years old. And when it came time to getting his first nanny, there's always a degree of trust because you don't really know who's going to be caring for your child. And things worked out marvelously. But what we did is we installed cameras in our house. So even when we weren't there, we could see what was going on. 
And one day, a couple of weeks ago, my firstborn son, Nigel, was behaving badly. But he didn't know Daddy was watching him with the camera. Now, this camera you can speak through. So I said, Nigel, cut it out. He looked like he just saw death, and he froze. Like, what is going on? And I had to immediately comfort him and say, Nigel, it's Daddy. The camera is on. You are not showing good behavior. Stop it right now. He immediately stopped, became very quiet, and said, okay, Daddy, I'll see you when I get home. Yes, you will see me. <laughs> now my son knows that Daddy can always see. Now the only place he's potentially safe is when he goes to Grandma's house. But when he's in Mommy and Daddy's house, he dare not try anything funny because Daddy can see him. Now if he's even thinking about doing something wrong, he'll tell someone, Daddy can see me, I can't do that. Daddy has not forgotten. My point, beloved, is this. I am but flesh who needs a camera to see my son to keep an eye on him. God doesn't need a camera. God sees everyone everywhere all the time. And a good rule of life that's going to be an antidote to sin is to live by the mantra, God sees everything. God is watching me right now. So while the fool will say God will never see it, the person of God knows better. Church, there may be people who live as if God does not see. And the reality is, there may be plenty of practical atheists here on earth, but here's reality. There are no atheists in hell. None. Everyone in hell knows beyond the shadow of a doubt that God has seen, that God has remembered, and that God is God. And one way or another, every man and woman ever born will have to deal with the King who reigns forever and ever. My closing point is this. Psalm number 10 is critically important because the Apostle Paul quotes Psalm number 10 in Romans chapter 3, in Romans 3.14, when he's preaching and explaining the gospel. We've described the wicked in general this morning, but we've never asked ourselves, church, who are the wicked specifically? And the Apostle Paul tells us, the wicked is everybody. The wicked are Jews and Gentiles alike, because every human being is born under sin. We talked about the wicked. We talked about the apostate this morning. Do you know who the real enemy within is? Me. Do you know who the real enemy within is? You. We are all fallen, totally depraved, wretched sinners. And if God didn't grace us, if God didn't redeem us, if God didn't save us, 
we would all be a planet full of wicked sinners and the stench of iniquity would cause the holy God of the universe to immediately and irrevocably wipe every single person out. We are all fallen. This is why we are all in desperate need of a Redeemer in desperate need of a savior. I, church, and the enemy within, that is why I need a redeemer without. If, any, if everything inside of me is bad, the only thing that come out is badness. This is why someone must cure us. This is why God must act as an external agent to transform us into new creatures so that now there's not exclusively badness on the inside, but God's saving grace. Psalm number 10 points us solely and exclusively to Jesus so that now by faith in him, God is now the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. Romans 3, 26. Beloved, realize this closing point. The greatest enemy in your walk with God your greatest enemy in developing a greater intimacy with your maker is the person in the mirror. This is why daily we must plead for God's saving grace to transform us, to be less like our wicked selves and more like our precious Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Lord, you never told us that your word will be cheery and happy. You never told us that your word would always make us feel uncomfortable. But you said in your word, it is sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces us, it challenges us, it shakes us, and it rattles us by design. So we can see, precious Lord, that you and you alone are the solution. You, Lord Jesus, are the only Savior, and you are the only mediator. You allow us, O oh Lord, oftentimes by your word and by experience to appreciate the weight and the, destruction and the destructiveness of darkness so we can only appreciate how splendid and how glorious your light is. We ask you, O oh Lord, to write this message on our hearts to know, realize, and understand that everyone, O oh Lord, on the face of planet Earth is in desperate need of you, Lord Jesus, and make us individually more acutely aware of that reality each and every day in our walk with you. Precious Jesus, if you had you not done an act on us from the outside, all that would be left is curses and deceit and oppression. Create within us a new heart and renew within us a steadfast spirit. So we will not desire ungodliness, but desire, Lord Jesus, you, the best there is. In the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. We do hope that you have been enriched and equipped by the preaching of Dr. Sadoffel. 
For more valuable resources, please visit WCSK.org. Until next time, peace be with you, and to God be the glory forever.